0: Theology,
1: and uh, it's I, I'm glad to be back. Um, Pastor Rob took over things last week and walked you through the doctrine of Providence. Uh, and so, I mean, Rob did such a good job from what I heard and the feedback. I don't think he wouldn't want me back, uh, but I'm glad to be here and be we'll able kind of get back at the mix here. Uh, if you haven't been coming or you haven't been here maybe you watched online or maybe this is your first time, what we're doing, why why it's, why it's bucket theology is because we're trying making an attempt to get some buckets into which we can organize all of our thought about God, all of our thought about the Bible so that you've got different basically categories, we're thinking about the things of God, and that's what we're doing. We're walking through and looking at these different categories or buckets, and these different groupings or categories or buckets, they help us then to know what are the topics, like what, how to, how to understand at least an overview of a topic as we're thinking about it. What are the things to think about? What's the level of detail and organization we should have? So that's that's kind of the aim that we're we're going through here, and uh, I see that some of you have ordered books. Uh, these are the books: "Summary uh, of Christian Doctrine" by Louis berkoff who died in 1957. And this this uh, there's actually there's one online. There's a version online, but that summary is just a series of categories of buckets. And so I'm going to be using uh, Louis Burkhoff's some of his ideas a little bit uh, as kind of our organizing principles, but we're also going to kind of apply it and make it a bit more personal for us as we go along. So that's what the bucket theology is about. And tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of man. So uh, issues of what it is to be a human being, uh, what it is to be to be a, a person, uh, and and another way might be maybe heard about at university is the idea of anthropology, so the idea of the study of, of of mankind, and that's what we're going to look at, what does the Bible say about humanity, and then as we start from there, then we can now, from there, kind of consider uh, even further, even the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to look at the Doctrine of Man tonight, so I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read a passage here and then I'm going to pray, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who came, who took on flesh, who was born of a virgin, who lived a life of perfect obedience, who experienced all that we experience yet without sin, who experienced it all and went as this perfect, sinless, pure, impeccable uh, sin bearer, who bore our sins, in his body on the cross who bore the wrath that that those sins deserved who carried that sin and who died even suffering the penalty of sin he died and was truly dead was in the ground and yet on the third day rose from the dead being vindicated from the grave showing that he is in fact truly god the one who is even Greater than the angels, the one who is not a created being, but truly is God the Son. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight, as we think about uh, your creation, even men and women, mankind, human beings, as we think about them, and we think about our relationship to you, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have the mind of Jesus Christ, the incarnate, that you'd fill us with your spirit. You'd help us as as many of us are tired. It's, it's been a long day. And to come here and think hard, it's difficult. So we ask that you would help us tonight and that you would honor your own name, even as, even as we think about the way you have ordered the world, and rather than how sinful man wants to order. So we just ask, Lord, that you would help us tonight. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that passage in Hebrews chapter 2, referring by the writer to the Hebrews, to Jesus Christ, is a quotation from in your handout. You should all have a handout there. Great, we have a handout. Uh, know where we're going. From Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5. It's, it's the very quotation. But Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5 appears by all accounts to be referring to the creation of man, creation namely even of, of Adam. And so then Adam as as then this, this man, this prototypical man, of uh, the son of man, of which then that title is one that Jesus took on later. So this is what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with angels. Angels are created beings that are different than human beings but they are elevated in some sense. And yet, did Jesus come to die for angels? What do you guys think? Oh, hey, hey. he didn't come to die for angels. These guys are smart. So I asked him. He didn't come to die for angels. So if you start thinking and accepting with the way this world talks about human beings, that's I think is very denigrating consider that that the Lord Jesus came incarnate as a man he didn't come as an angel he, there is no salvation for for fallen angels. never think about that there's no salvation for fallen angels. there's only salvation for human beings who believe in Jesus Christ there's only a savior for them so that's kind of what we have as a start now you see a couple of quotes there I just opened with a couple of quotes in your handout. And that theologian Winston Churchill, uh, I don't think I don't I will I won't say Winston Churchill was a Christian. I, I highly doubt he was. I don't think he was. But he said in, in his kind of a capable way, he said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And we certainly see that in all aspects of our lives. It's it's really a hard issue. That's that's where our problems are. The Puritan Thomas Brooks. He said sin is a plague. Um, you know, you would think about these pandemics and so-called all these different things. Sin is a plague. Yes, the greatest and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, ah, uh, how few are there that tremble at it, that keep a distance from it. You know, how many times am I gonna wash my hands of that hand sauce so that I don't get don't get infected by some type of pollution that's gonna make me sick? And yet we can we can be surprisingly close to sin and not think that sin could get on us. Uh, we can get we can get kind of into that. John Owen. This is just a recommendation. This is there's a Puritan paperback from John Owen. This is a revised one called just simply Temptation, but it's from from Owen's work on temptation, and he's got a series of. Of books on it. This is just appeared in paperback, and Owen says this: How many professing believers have I known that plead for their liberty, as they call it? They proceed to hear any opinion from any person. They seek to try all things, whether they come to them in the ways of God or not. They run to hear every teacher of false and abominable opinions and every seducer, though condemned by the saints in general. Yes, they are free to hear them. Though they claim to hate their views but what is the outcome I have hardly known any who have come away without a serious wound that's a pro- that's because sins and it's infectious and so we want to be on guard and part of this is understanding and the nature of human beings and how what's happening to them but was it always this way was it always the case that human beings were sinners were we created sinners were we created centers. No. Nope. No, that's the right answer. Thank you. So, so there has to be then a dynamic in terms of how we were created. Now, when we think about human beings, there are then two two key components. You see it there in your chart. A little chart. We are body and soul. You need this kind of thing that somebody uses as a slogan for a a clothing store maybe or something body and soul um, you you see there that that we are created as as having then these physical bodies but that is all there is now if 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 we only thought that we were created just as bodies what would be that worldview what's what's the name for that worldview if, if there's just the body and that's all that matters anybody What's that? Materialism. materialism. Yeah, because it just it's just the material stuff. That's all that matters. There is nothing beyond that. So materialism or naturalism, uh, there's it, that that viewpoint is this idea that there is no spirit. There is nothing else. What you have is just your body, and that's that's all there is, and then you die. It's very nihilistic, very despairing. Um, what I want you to do is, is just take take just a few moments and look up those different passages you have there in your hand handout. So Matthew 6:25, Matthew 10:28, Ecclesiastes 12:7, 1 Corinthians 5 verse three and five. So I want you to just work at your tables and just if there's you know if there's uh, five of you, you just take the first passage, each, just read them to each other. And then I'm going to ask you some quick questions in a couple of minutes. Matthew six, what's what's going on there? What's what's give me a summary, somebody. From sermon on the mount. sermon on the mount. What's what's it do? What's it saying in relation to to body or soul or spirit? What's what's it saying? There's a distinction between the body and the soul, but the body is not treated as separate from great death, which one Yeah, so they're together. Yeah, so there's a sense of of unity. Yeah, together. Okay. What What about What about Matthew 10? What's going on there? Pretty relevant. What's, ha- what's happening in Matthew ten twenty eight? Sure, go ahead, Daniel. Cause everybody's scared. So go ahead. Yeah, or yeah, there's some type, some type of danger to both body and soul. And we all, we tend to think like every, all of us, all of us, even Christians daily, tend to worry only about our bodies. Worry about getting in a car accident, but are we worried about our soul, right? And we need to be concerned with the soul. The people around you, they're, they're worried about their body. They're worried about their physical health. Are they worried about their soul's health? Where, What what about their soul? What's going to happen to their soul? Okay, uh, Ecclesiastes 12. Does anybody, did they find it and you click there, or did you just skip that one because it's in the Old Testament? Ecclesiastes no, 12 someone else there's a third destination for body and soul there's a destination for body and soul yeah okay so there's 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 end goals there's there's things that are going to happen last what about first Corinthians chapter 5 it's a little bit more uh, uncomfortable passage first Corinthians chapter 5 what what are we learning there about body and soul? First in verse three. Okay. What's what's ubiquity mean? Um, sorry, I just, I just for everybody. Okay. Yeah. So, so even Paul, Paul can have this kind of spiritual connection to people, even to this church even though he's not physically there. And so he's caring about them. And isn't that how we all are? We, we care about people. There's people not at the Bible study tonight. We care about them, even though they're camping out in Drumnelly. <laughs> See, all you those you people got left behind. <laughs> Maybe you didn't get the invite. I don't know. Sure. Sorry. Sorry, let's rub a little ball in the moon there. You didn't get invited. Verse 5 you are to and you are to deliver this man to satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord well there's a there's a distinction there isn't it that this threat of his own death might be enough to scare this guy to repent and so that his spirit would be saved the inner person okay so you start seeing man body and soul now what the other thing you've noticed though is that there's not there's not just two words there's a third word isn't it what's the third word i'm going to put it i'm going to put it over here spirit you might have heard teachers talk about body soul and spirit that we are three parts but it doesn't i don't think i don't think that's correct generally the teachers that teach the so-called tripartite division, what that were body, soul, and spirit, uh, they have other theological agendas that they need that those three parts fit into. But generally the Bible uses these two interchangeably. It doesn't, you know, so you've got you've got you've got basically two. There's just two. Um, now the 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 way that Burkoff for example, would describe it is that, that this is just soul and spirit, the different language being used, Numa and, and, and Nefesh in the Hebrew. Uh, it's the spiritual element in man from different points of view. So, for example, the spirit, when, when generally it's referring to the spirit, it's referring to then this principle of life and action which controls the body. When when there's a mention of soul, it's the personal subject which thinks and feels and wills and is then the seat of the affections. Now, what I want to do to make this practical is actually I'm making an argument that I believe that the whole trans movement, which stands for transsexuality, it actually rejects body and soul and that's the chart that i've given you there is that and it's actually helpful always to sometimes see how does satan attack the truth and what is the lies that satan is presenting and how does that compare with the truth and i think we see this for example so in the transsexuality it rejects the body you know so transsexuality rejects the body the body is discardable or if you don't like your body you can change it you can cosmetically change it you can change it change your look you can change it into whatever you want it to be you want it to be male you want it to be female you want it to be a third being you want it to be something else you can change it well it's a discardable body whereas God gives us a body, what we're going to look at here in a minute, Genesis chapter one. But, but our bodies that we have are, are a gift. It's, this is the body God gave me. Um, you know, I'd like to be, you know, six foot six, but I'm not. I'm only, you know, I'm only 5'11. So just got to take it. Be, Be accepting it. Um, Or whatever it might be, you know, we're all tall or short or whatever we might be, but that's what God has given us. But that the transsexuality rejects the body, it doesn't like the body that God has given. But then, secondly, in terms of the soul, I think that they they it has the two elements of the soul rejected, and in place of the soul, the soul is act it acts as if there is no soul and in its place you have gender. Gender. So gender is then it's, it's put in the place of the principle of life action. So so if a, if an individual say say a boy says well inside of me I've got this principle of life action that's fluid and dynamic and I want to be a different gender, well then I can have then from the inside I want to be, I'm a a girl wanting to get outside of a boy's body is the logic of the transsexuality movement. As well, the other part is then if you look at kind of the soulish side is that there's identity. Identity is then situated in the soul. Who am I? Oh well, it's, it's situated inside me, this personal subject, but it's actually then pushing the soul out. There is no soul. There's just my identity. So that if I say something to a person adopting a transsexual human, say something to them about their identity, they feel like I'm attacking them at the level of their soul. you understand how that works, how that deception works? That's why it's so personal. It's not that, oh, well, I agree. I choose to disagree with you about your perspective because I don't think it's biblical. And they're like, if you're attacking your disagreement goes against my very soul, because they don't have a soul anymore, per se, in their own mind, they've got an identity. So that's that's where this stuff is extremely practical to the contemporary issues of today. And anytime when you see what the Bible says. And then you see what the world is saying. Very often you see Satan try to offer counterfeits of the truth. And so we have the same structure. There's a body-soul structure, but then they're replaced. The body is discardable. It's not being treated as a gift. And you have gender and identity replacing the soul-spirit aspects of the soul. So that's, that's me making an application. You might not necessarily agree with it, but that's, I think it's a pretty effective application. I'll open maybe to, uh, you got a question on my application of that. Uh, if there's a question there, you know, offer a question and maybe one comment. Okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. It's a it's, the question is, is, what 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 are you what are you wanting to do with the cosmetic surgery? Uh, now it does get into things in terms of in terms of cosmetics. Like why did I, why did I have to shower and put a clean shirt on? Yeah, just is for the gracious you know I'm trying to be gracious to everybody else here. So okay. you know. So there are elements like like because of the fall, we will do things to remedy or try to mitigate the effects of the fall. All of us are getting all of us are getting older, all of us are dying, all of us are getting smellier. We could say, oh you know all of it. It's all happening now So we can mitigate that. but what we're talking about here though is a view of the body that the body that has been given me beyond just the natural consequences sin the body is wrong. The body is wrong and I want. I want I want to reject this body. And that's why then there's there's a desire to totally change the body. Of course, what 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 we're finding, of course, or and sadly, people in this situation are finding is they try to make those changes, go through the surgery, apply the chemicals, do all the things, and they still can't actually change their body. They can only mutilate it and and injure it. And so they can't change what God has given them ultimately. They can kind of change the appearance of it. They can't change it, but it's from a fundamental view that this body that has, is a gift from God to all, all people don't have to be a Christian to, to have a body that's a gift from God, which we're going to get into in the image of God session here in a minute. Then it's rejecting that image. So that even that's a sin. That's that, even that rejection of the body that you've been given is a sin. But dealing with the consequences of the fall, like we're not in heaven, and so I still need to put on deodorant. And you're thankful. <laughs> good question. Very good question. Yeah, good question. Okay. Why do you think this has become so intense in the last couple of years? Um, the whole kind of sexual identity and gender. I I have various various theories about what's going on in society and different stuff, but I don't I don't think that I don't think that my theories on the practical stuff or political stuff or cultural things I actually don't think they explain it very well. I believe that it's it's just a it's a demonic deception. It's just Mm. it's just a wash. And so people who have enjoyed the vestiges. of of christianity as a blessing in western society they get the blessings but now they don't want the christ and they're like we've had you know since at least since world war ii after world war ii people are like yeah well i can i can live kind of in a leave it to beaver kind of a nice you know judeo-christian style of living but i actually don't have to believe in jesus and now all the chickens have come home to roost on that. And and people didn't. I don't think people, a lot of people realized what would happen when you don't. When you actually don't believe in Christ, you actually open yourselves up to demonic activity. And along with that is just a mass deception. We think we're so clever. Like like our Western society thinks it's the smartest people around. We all do. Our, all our politicians, all our leaders, all our institutions—we think we're the smartest because we've got these fans and phones, and we've got technology, and we can broadcast across the internet. And yet, this kind of stuff is so blatantly, blatantly false. And yet, it's it's a lie belief. So I think it's a deception, and and that's why then I'm not really I don't have much hope in merely logistical, political, or kind of educational. Uh, solutions. I think it has to be a work of the Spirit to, to make them, to make people see to take away the blindness. But, yeah. Okay. So I want everybody in your group to go to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. And I want you to read just so you can appoint a reader in your table and read out nice and clear Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. And and what I want you to do, just like the handout says, I want you to identify these different elements where claims are being made about human beings. In there and how what the Bible says in Genesis 1:26 to 31, how it contrasts with stuff going on in contemporary culture. So, what's what is the Bible saying about a human being, what human beings are like, and then how that's different than what's being claimed in contemporary society in the world. Okay, is everybody clear on that? So you're find out what is the Bible saying about human beings. And you're making just a quick little conversation about how that's different. Next up. So go ahead and go. Genesis 26 to 31. Let's start going through this passage and then we'll we'll just spot some things we see in terms of descriptions of humanity, and then we'll look at the contemporary stuff. But what is the first and most important thing of this whole deal in verse 26? Yeah, and 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 you're created. He's, he's you're you're made. So there's a creator and there's a creature. So understanding first the creator, he's created, and then secondarily we have the ex- explanation of being made in. Our image. So, image and likeness. Okay, I'm stop there and see our applications there. So, first off, then, if there's creator, the creator created distinct, how is that different? If, if, if humans are created by this divine being, that stands... That stands in contrast to they simply evolved, evolved by some random or whatever processes. What about in terms of being created in the image of God and the likeness of God? What is that what is that what how does that stand in contrast to what people say in society or how people are viewed? There was a, we're monkeys, so then uh, so there's that, so so maybe being merely animals, what else? We're just a product of either our genes or our environment. Yeah, so so you're just a product of environment. So when we're when it says we're creating the image of God in his likeness, it gives us inherent and I think this this summarizes it all, it gives us dignity. There's dignity given. There's a dignity that's more than being an animal. There's a dignity that's more than being just a clump of cells. There's dignity uh, more than being then the the result of a series of random processes. And this is why we say we are pro-life, thank you. you. We're pro-life because we believe in the dignity, dignity of people. Why do we believe in the dignity of human beings? Because they're made in the image and likeness of God. And that that is what gives us the dignity. Because otherwise, if we're only viewing it naturalistically and materialistically, oh, well, some scientist says, well, you are just a clump of cells. Or, oh, well, you have features that are similar to primates. So depending on the person and their school of study, oh, well, they're just going to look at you only in terms of their narrow view. But we know, no, they are creating them to God and likeness of God. So there's there's a dignity there that that elevates us. So, what are some other features? So we have uh, we have God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have what? Okay, Dominion. Boy, man's supposed to have Dominion." That's that's not acceptable. What's the and this, this gets into the environmental question the environmentalists say? What's their view of of human beings? Virus. What's that? A virus. A virus. Yeah, human beings are a virus on the planet or parasites, we're parasitical, and so it's a it's a very low view of humanity that we're we're the problem. Uh, so, so again, no dignity. That we're a virus, or we're a parasite on the earth. I always, I always marvel at the people who say that kind of stuff. Because, well, what about them? You know, like they're going around making money, giving talks, and working for NGOs, and saying, "Oh yeah, humans are parasites. And, you know, we got to protect the animals." Yeah, but you're, you're <laughs> one. Of them. You know, it's it's uh, not out for their own self-preservation, really. Um, but that's why this, there's this kind of a, a madness to it. And, it. and it's not logical. So there's dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock. And that's where this table was talking about the rodeo. Uh, guys have dominion over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on Then verse 27, what's what's really significant that we haven't covered? What's significant there in verse 27? Male and female. Do I add another plus sign on there? No, no. No, there's just two. So it is binary is the lingo people use today. And they put it in a negative. Oh, they somebody else's claim to be non binary. So you want to add on. No, male and female. That's it. You wouldn't think. I'm sure for most of not always, but through most of biblical history, there wouldn't even be much of a concern to need to think, oh, okay, we've got to limit it to male and female. But in our day, we have to limit it to see God has set parameters that it is this male and female. Now, there's been times in history where where females are not human being created in the image of God, that they're somehow subhuman, or there's certain kind of men that are subhuman. And so that was the view of the Nazis in World War II, that there were certain types of people that are subhuman and are not worthy of life. So then they committed them to the gas chambers. But this is this is the thing, and obviously. So the question is, well uh, oh yeah, that this was... Environmental, and then, and then this is uh, this. yeah we're male and female, so it's uh, first trans. Plus, plus, plus. <laughs> <laughs> but if if the plus 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 is at the level of the of the soul's replacement. You can see that. How? Who are you to say there's a limit? You just keep adding and changing because it's something interior to someone. But then they replace the soul with with then gender. Um, okay, so male and female. What about verse? What about verse 28? What do you see there? Of a simple thing, might even pass over it. Multiple.
0: Okay, fruitful
1: and multiply. Okay, now what's the one? What's, how does that stand in contrast? Depopulation. Population control. The one even before that. God bless, guys. Bless. Just again, it speaks to the dignity, but it also speaks to the spirituality of human beings. That just that blows up the whole concept of only purely materialistic beings, Marxist views, that kind of thing. Well, no, no, you're blessed. Human beings are blessed by God, created in the image of God by original design. And Neali- there's, there's nihilistic philosophies that think, well, no, we aren't blessed, that we're, we're cursed. And there are totally dark philosophies. And then according to that nihilistic philosophy, life is meaningless. Nothing is, there is no meaning. Well, if we're blessed of God, no, there is meaning to life. There's meaning. And everybody out here in the city of Calvary needs to know that there's meaning to life. That because God has blessed human beings, even even the sinner out there, there's a, there's meaning and purpose there, but they need to find that fulfillment in Christ over against the nihilistic philosophies that are in there. Um, fruitful multiply with did population control. Then yeah, then further on we looked at Dominion already, uh, verse twenty nine. You know, basically the use of the earth. Are we allowed to use, use the stuff? You know, well, he said, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree of seed that is fruit. You shall have them for food. You know, and we're being told, no, you're not supposed to eat that stuff. No, you're not supposed to eat these things. You're told you got to stop eating so much. Well, no, he he gave it to us. He gave us the beast of the earth. We'll give it all to us. You know, over over against yeah, trying to trying to reduce your diet, basically have some type of starvation imposed on you. And last there is is verse thirty one. God saw everything that he had made behold. It was very good. And that includes human beings, male and female. So this is this really important that we are positive about the dignity of human beings. We have to preserve the dignity of human beings. Yes, we understand sin. We're going to get in that in two seconds here. But, but we have to preserve the dignity of human beings because godless, wicked philosophies denigrate the dignity of human beings. And, and so that's... We've got to be kind of attentive to that. Okay. look at then look over at your next page. you've got a, you've got another little chart there, the image of God. and this is this is then the theologian's distinctions between the image of God viewed viewed in terms of the natural image of God and then the moral image of God. So again, these are buckets, these are categorizations, the natural. It's kind of the wider sense, so that it's man's spiritual, rational, moral, immortal being. It was obscured, but was not lost by sin. So man can, in the broader sense, be called the image or image-bearer of God. So when we talk about your neighbor that's not a Christian, well, you can view them naturally in this natural sense as still being created in the image of God. That image is obscured. It is marred. It is affected by sin. And you can lament how sin affects your neighbor who is created in the image of God. But they are still, nevertheless, created in the image of God in terms of this natural category. However, in a, in a moral sense, in a restricted sense... The true knowledge of God and with true righteousness and true holiness, when man sinned, when Adam sinned, that was lost. So that's the true, the true moral sense that, that, that moral sense of the image of God that was lost. And it's only restored in the last act. It's only restored in Christ. So, so now there gets to be some confusion about this, I think. It gets to be confusion about, about this, where people will kind of treat, treat people, individual human beings as, oh, well, they're creating the image of God, as if almost they don't need any, any help. They're all okay. They'll treat them as if they're okay, and, oh, yeah, well, we just need to educate them with, uh, you know, the Christian stuff. But then it's for their benefit, it's beneficial for them. But they're okay because they're created in the image of God. Well, yeah, but the image of God is mine. And there is an aspect of the image of God that is lost. It is lost. And they need Christ in order to have that restored. They need Christ. And if without Christ, they are lost, it is lost by sin. And so I was gonna turn into groups. I'm kind of getting behind here, so I'm gonna do it just. For everybody just kind of open it up we've got kind of an application to think about these two aspects of the image of god if we think if you're like me we're having questions about okay well, what about christian influence in society what about christian influence in politics what about should the laws of the land be conforming to christian morality well how does let's call it a christian commonwealth Canada used to be known as, how, how can a Christian commonwealth relate to the image of God in these two senses? So, so you've got Christian, or at least professively Christian politicians, they're trying to have christian kind of laws. How do they relate? Are they able to have things that are in keeping with the image of God naturally? Are they able to do it in terms of morally what do you think about that? Gonna open it up and we'll keep, yeah, go ahead, man I would say they're trying to uh try to use the natural result for the room. Okay. The law doesn't save us. Yeah. And so we wanna pose the law benefits of that, but that's not saved. Yeah. Yeah, so so there is, I think, I think it's a good thing when we lobby our politicians to pass laws restricting abortion, which of course in Canada we don't even have a But we we can lobby to that end. Because uh, fathers and mothers of unborn children who are gonna abort babies, well they they should be they should be stopped from doing that. And I think that's a good thing to stop them. And the unborn the unborn child, the, the, this this infant in the womb well, because of the dignity of being created in the image of God, well, that should be preserved. So, even in all of this, there's sin, there's obscurity by, sin, there's obscurity of the image of God, and yet still we can see the dignity of human beings. And so, preserving kind of a let's call it a culture of life versus a culture of death, because of the dignity of the life of human beings. So that's a good thing. At the same time, as Randy pointed out. There is no way, there is no way, that any government is going to then be able to change the hearts. You know, Churchill couldn't. You know, somebody need to change Churchill's heart in different respects. You know, like that. How do you how do you have your heart change? Well, it's not by external laws. It's by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just being clear about that, and that's even in some of our discussions as we talk about people talk about. Christian Christians engaging in politics and Christians in culture and culture and Christian nationalism and whatever other Christian in, influence in society. Well, we've got to kind of understand what are we trying to do? Because if we get it wrong, what we'll do is we'll we'll get them confused and think, oh, well, we're applying these laws to people created in the image of God, and then we'll think they're okay. One of the things when I was in the Netherlands um, talking with my professor, Dr. Selderhaus. He said one of the errors that happened in the 1800s was that they had Christian politicians with good intentions, but they, they started to think that, oh, if they just applied laws to help society, viewing people in, as creating the image of God in that natural sense, it actually, you get the moral part with it, and the result was you had all these people thinking they're true believers, and they're all going to hell, and they had the denominations all went broke. And so, so we want to be careful about that. But that also then relates to, okay, here you're in Bridgeland. How does this relate in terms of evangelism? So so uh, I'll just use a guy. I know Ahmed who has a pizza place down at Roma's Pizza. Ahmed comes walking over. How do you relate to him? What's your view of him in terms of the image of God? How do you view him? Is he created in the image of God? He's a Muslim. Is he created in the image of God? Yes. yes. Okay, in sense. God created him. Okay, God created him. God created everybody in okay. the image of God. Yeah. So, in terms of the two categories, though, how will we how will we differentiate them? Because is he going to heaven? No, he's not going to heaven. He's going to get to the heavens. Yeah, a Christian. You have okay. To be more than made in the of God. Yeah. So you you have to be, that's right. You have to be more than made in the image of God naturally. Because now, because of sin, it's all marked. You actually need to be, you actually need to be made in the image of the image of God, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 that I started this off with. Jesus Christ now is the true image of God. In him, we believe in him. And then the image is restored in him. And Ahmed, who I've spoken with, shared the gospel with many times, he needs to be born again and Basically, recreated in the image of God, even in Jesus Christ. So it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, well, he's created in the image of God. He's he's good. He's good. Yeah, he's got some problems, but he's good. And just leave him. Let him go to hell in the handbasket. No, no. That's no good. He, he needs He needs to be recreated in this moral sense, not just the natural sense. Is that helpful? Or is this like thick as mud? Is it helpful? Any qu- questions? Is it is it thickest mud back there or is it okay? It's good. Okay. I just, I just saw it. I just thought it's strange that maybe reaction I just didn't know if it's positive or negative. So this is this is what we this is what we want. Any questions on it? Let's let it just stick to questions, not comments. Let people make comment that um Maybe more sense of the circle by a lot of people have gods or old code kind of printed on their hearts and So it kind of blurs the two a little Like I think Maybe not just common grace conviction that people get but they can sense that this isn't like right. 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 Yeah, right? Like it's not just Christian Like it has a this here This was non So is there a it says we're we're lost at the same time, we're dead and you know so we're hot felt to God, we're dead yeah. we so total neutrality. So do we have any moral that's sending us words to God? Or... Mm-hmm. Well well the thing is uh that that Paul when he he walks through that in Romans chapter two and even in Romans chapter one, the sense that That everybody knows, but they are even in Romans Romans chapter one. Let's all go here. Turn to turn to Romans chapter one. Verse eighteen. Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is, re- is revealed, not his will be, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Even the category of unrighteousness of men is dealing with the moral image of God. Who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. It's not that they just don't know. They suppress it. They're, they're like, the truth is there, and like, I'm going to push this down. I don't want it. Let's get it out of here. It's not, oh, well, no, I didn't know. They suppress the truth. Verse 19 For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And this is kind of getting to raised question. Do people, when they come to the show up at church or you meet them, in, do they have an excuse? Is there an excuse why they're not believing? No, no, they're without excuse. This is kind of the problem that the church had got into. They thought if they could provide people with excuses, that maybe people would come to the church and eventually believe in Jesus. If they provide them with a ready-made excuse for a while. But then what they didn't realize was there is no neutrality. When people are unbelieving, that unbelief is still sin. Like we're obligated to believe it. It's not like people are these neutral, innocent people that are sitting there. And it's, oh I just didn't know No, no, you do, and you're like stuffing it away. You didn't want to look at it. You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You're without excuse. For although, verse 21, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Back to your question, Jason. They became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things, and goes on to all of the reality. So the the problem is that's, that's the philosophy churches took, was to provide an excuse for people saying, oh, well, you're creating the image of God. Well, yeah, they are, and they do know things. They, they can see things but they don't know Christ savingly and the moral image of God was not has not been restored in them. and to treat them like it is is then is then telling them a lie and that's why then there's a whole generation of people that went to church I, we would meet them people I'd ask them, oh, so, you know are so uh where do you go to church and they'd say give me a name of a church and I'd say oh okay yeah you know like so Go so there often, yeah, you know, once or twice a year. And people, oh, okay. That's your church. That's my church. Oh, okay. Yeah, but well, it's pretty clear that they don't have any interest in Jesus Christ. But they thought and they were told, and I think they were told that it was all okay so long as you're showing up, so long as you're in the building, and definitely putting your money in place to be really cynical about Okay. On to, so that's the, that's looking at man creating the image of God. Now we're going to get into, you thought this was petty maybe. Or maybe this is like, yeah, you're exact, you know exactly what's on really tracking. We're going to move into something that should scare everyone. And it's the concept called covenant theology. And they're like, oh. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I love I love this heady stuff. Covenant theology. Well, we're not necessarily getting knee deep in the covenant theology per se, but we are going to look at some buckets with the term covenant. Now, what's a just just in in your own? Does uh, everybody get this? Can I wipe this off. Just take a picture of it. Okay, covenant give me an example of a covenant marriage thank you marriage is a covenant it's not just a contract it's not just like you know signing up at Costco you know that's a contract you can go to Costco you don't have to go to Costco get the card but you don't have to shop there you can you can line up for gas there if you want you don't have to but that is how some people treat marriage. So you can go or don't go, or oh well, I'm done. I'm not going here. No, it's a like A marriage is a covenant. So, so then, just even from an understanding of marriage, tell me what a covenant actually is. Okay, it's an agreement, but it's got to be more than one. That both are to each other. Okay, both parties are committing to each other. Yeah. Okay, it's got promises involved. If there's an oath, so there's some type of binding declaration goes with it. What happens in a in a marriage that that symbolizes that that all of this has taken place? Like this. There's witnesses, yeah, there's witnesses, that's a good point. But there what's a what what happens in a marriage when uh before they kiss? They exchange rings. Got I got my covenant symbol on my on my hand here. Right? So just reminded, yeah, I am I'm, I'm in a covenant for everybody to see. I've got this emblem of the covenant. And so that's that's kind of the, the these different These different features that go into a covenant. Now, what many theologians have recognized is that those earth in Genesis, the way it's set up, there seems to be the establishment of a covenant in the way that God relates to man. So it seems to be a covenant. And it is called the Covenant of Works. Now, if you are a you know super duper theology person, then you know there's probably there's lots of controversy and different naming conventions about this Covenant of Works from different theologians. John Murray speaks of the Adamic administration, and there's all kinds of things built about the Covenant of Works, but essentially. Pretty much everybody agrees on the basic feature of what's going on here. Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 21. I'm just going to read it for us. I'm not going to read the Hosea passage. It's just referring to Adam having sin. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin... Came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. That is kind of this forecasting figure. He was a type. Of the one who was to come, speaking about Jesus Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, uh, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you see uh, that's a lot there, but you'll see essentially you can see this interplay. Between what Adam did and in contrast that Christ. So I urge you when you go home or tonight, but just for the next few days, to go through Romans 5 12 through 21. Think about the contrast between Adam and Christ. That's going to be helpful. And it kind of sets up this whole discussion of the covenant of works and what we'll talk about the covenant of grace. But I want you now to go to Genesis chapter. Genesis chapter 2, because there was all that talk about transgression. Transgression, trespass, going across a boundary, going across some some type of boundary. Go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Everybody there? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, there's a command, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then he goes on to provide then the help even even the creation of the woman. Now in the context then, we know later on in chapter 3, after they would sinned, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way of the garden way to the tree of life. Well, something happened there. There was this sin, but we have to see. What was the covenant established of which we know Adam transgressed? What was the, what was the terms of the agreement? What was the terms of the relationship? What, how do we know it was a covenant? Well, you've got the little chart there. You see that there? The chart. You've got the parties. Parties are gone now. You've got a covenant. You've got two parties. You've got a husband and wife. You've got two parties. In this case, it's God and man. You've got a promise. The promise is life. Now, you think, yeah, but Adam's already alive. He's already alive. So how is there a promise of life? It's generally understood by theologians that the promise of life is the promise of continued life and life forever. What would be more equivalent to what we would call resurrected, glorified life life with god forever so there's kind of a probationary period it seems here but that's this special distinct life so if if adam is obedient there's this promise that he would keep on living and it makes sense so in my understanding there's the knowledge the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he was not to eat but there's also the tree of life and so he could have kept eating the tree of life just kept on living and lived forever (laughs) And you think, how do you take dominion over the whole earth? Well, you got to keep on living, right? All right, just go keep eating front from the tree of life, keeps on living, keeps on having children, populating the earth, having dominion over the earth, taking over, and just, you know, live happily ever after. But then he didn't do that. But that was the promise. The condition was obedience. And this is where... When we talk about works, there was a work that had to be done. There was this obedience that had to be rendered to God. God's the Lord, and Adam is the servant. The servant needs to obey the master. The obedience was very simple. It not like, oh, I'm going to give you 10,000 rules that you've got to follow. No, there was only one thing. That he had to do, And it was to not eat. Of the tree. Of the knowledge. So. You all know. Satan would deceive him. Deceive Eve. And say oh you're not supposed to touch it. He, he could even touch it. He just couldn't eat it. It's all. He, it's all. That's all. But it was a condition. So it was not. An unconditional covenant. This is some of the theological discussion. This is not an unconditional covenant. This is a conditional covenant. So he's got he's under condition. He's got to be obedient. The penalty for breaking that condition was death. Okay, right? You see it there in verse 17. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, basically, I don't have time to go walk through Genesis 3 to see all the ways, all the dynamics, but you guys are pretty familiar with them. But you can see Satan was trying to deceive Eve at each point. But then the sacrament, as Burkhoff calls it, or I prefer the term ordinance, is the tree of life. He can keep having access to the tree of life. And, and him and Eve both could. So that's the terms of this covenant of works so that's the structure that God put in place in the beginning and that's the way that's the way it was now of course we know Adam's sin so what is you know is the covenant of works still in place today does it still fit what do you what do you think do we still are, are people still obligated under the covenant of works not Christians, but just generally people out there, are they still obligated? Okay, Glenn's answering, go ahead. I think maybe we say we, we are, we have failed under the covenant of in Adam. Say it once more. That, that we have failed in the covenant, the covenant of works in Adam. Yeah, so, so if he's failed, the obligations of that obedience still remain. So we're in Adam. Adam failed, the covenant works. He sinned. Um, I sin. Like, so it's not like, okay, at, like if anybody outside of Christ, well, how am I gonna how am I gonna meet God's standard? How am I gonna how am I gonna attain to that? How am I going to to achieve that? And so we need, as Jesus, as Paul said about Jesus in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, where it is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So like we, unless we can do it all and do it all perfectly and pristinely, we are under the curse. So the curse of the covenant of works still abides because we're in an Adam and because we're still sinners and we're still imperfect. It would abide on us unless, of course, there's some remedy. Now, before we get to the remedy, we, the, the covenant demands perfect obedience, but it, but the remedy in Christ is that Christ has fulfilled the covenant. Christ, according to Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, Christ was obedient. How, how much? To the point of death. How far? Even death on a cross. So, so Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant of works by his pristine, invincible life, absolutely obedient, 100% to the max. So that's why we can have confidence. It's not that, oh, well, Jesus is just going to wink at our sin and just act as if it's not there. No, no, it's like, no, he knows our sin. But, but Christ has been obedient. He has been fully obedient. He has fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. Jesus has fulfilled. So if you trust in Christ, it's not just this, you know, mysticism. It's very objective. Jesus obeyed. <laughs> I, I didn't obey to fulfill the covenant works. Jesus has fulfilled it, and God has vindicated Jesus as having done it. And so that's then our comfort. It's very objective. It's very grounded. When you feel like, oh, well, I'm such a failure. I can't do anything. I disobey. Or, you know, well, yeah. Yeah. But Jesus has fulfilled that those demands. And then he gives them this free grace, which we're going to get to in a second. But before we get there, then looking at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, you guys know it. Genesis chapter 3. I think everybody here probably is pretty familiar with it. Um, In terms of the manifestations of sin, I'll just go to Genesis Genesis chapter 3. We have the deceptions of of the serpent uh, beginning their latter part of verse one. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Well, that's not true. Lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He just flat out denied what God had said about the covenant. For God knows, and this is the serpent speaking. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now I got to put this question to you, because later at the end of end of chapter three, God says, "Yeah, there's this element where the man know is like God, knowing good and evil." But I thought God, I thought man was created in the likeness of the image of God. So was there some way in which man wasn't in the likeness of God? So it's interesting. The likeness and image of God in which man was created was the way that God wanted us to be. He didn't make us God. We're, we're like God in certain respects, but there's other elements that we're not like. And basically, what's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve? Was to try to be like God in ways that God had not permitted. And to be discontent with being like God in ways that God had provided with us to be. And that's basically for all of us, right? We want to be, we want to be like God in ways that He has not assigned to us. I'd like to be in like three different places at once. You know, I'd like to be omnipresent. At least that's what my calendar looks like. <laughs> but God has not permitted me to be like him in those ways. And when I start acting like I'm like God in those ways that I'm not permitted to be, I get into trouble. Because he has not assigned that to me. And that was the temp, that part of the temptation. Um Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was light to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband. Where was he? Why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he start preaching the truth there? Where was he? And he was with her and he ate. The two most tragic words in the whole Bible. He ate. Mm -hmm. Tragic. All the wickedness of this world, all the all the all the horrors, the worst stuff that happens in this world, the genocide, the, the tragedy, the, the awful stuff are down to those two words. He ate. And in him when he ate, he ate, he broke the cup. So you see there in the chart sins, manifestations. This is then Burkhoff. Unpacking this, basically, their sin is manifested in intellect in terms of unbelief and pride. Adam, Adam did not want to be under God. He wanted to kind of be his own man, or be under the serpent. So he had just—he he did not believe in God. He was stopping believing in God. He didn't want to trust God. He didn't trust. He thought God was holding on. He didn't trust. Him. So it, it showed great pride. So this is Adam and all of his intellect. He's got unbelief and pride. What about his will? Well, he went along with what the serpent said because he had the desire to be like God. He's longing to be like God in a way God had not assigned him. And then in his affections, he had an un. Holy satisfaction in what is forbidden. He wanted what was forbidden. He wanted to be satisfied by something beyond what God had given. God had said, no, you can't have that. And he's like, no, I'm only going to be satisfied if I have what you don't give me. He wasn't satisfied with what. He wasn't satisfied with all the provisions. And just straight up, let's be honest. When you sin, when you sin, it's because you're not satisfied with all that God has provided you. You want something that you can't have. And you want it now. You want it immediately. The result was guilt, utter corruption, and then being under the sway of death, which is laid out in the rest of the chapter. Burkhoff says at the bottom of the page, sin equals a kind of evil, namely a moral evil for which man is responsible, which brings him under a sentence of condemnation. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. we often talk about desire to assume that we would. Adam's in, been, right. to be like that, yeah, yeah. So, so then, what we see then is is that the the transgression is complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Now, the one thing yeah. is, uh, Paul says that Eve was deceived. So some people like immediately say, oh, it's because of Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam, he says, was not deceived. So this is the distinct. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. Adam knew what he was doing. There's, and as far as then, then his own choice, and there's a little bit of the mystery in terms of then his own choice. He's still a created finite being. And, and God is permitting him to have, then, this exercise of will. Um, but in in that complex of the relationship of the fall, we can see that in the act, he ate, there is, then, this component behind it, but I think it's all connected to it. Like, if you can't separate it out, you can't separate the desire from the act away. A lot of people want to separate them today. They want to separate acts from... Like what you do from the desires to it. It all goes together. It's all a chain. So, if you flip the page to that very point that Henry made, Burkhoff makes this very good point. He says In distinction from the Roman Catholics, we maintain that it does not consist in outward acts only, but includes evil thoughts, affections, and intents. That are very important. If you think it's only bad stuff that you do, that's sin, you you don't understand the nature of the heart. I don't have time to go through the text. You can look up those texts Matthew 5, Romans 7, Galatians 5, all dealing with the desires. Now, very quickly then, why is it? I, I stress this point with Adam. Why is it not? Why is the issue not Adam and Eve? Isn't, isn't Eve the, is, what? Oh, go ahead. Adam is the federal head. Oh, uh, Glenn, you're way ahead of everybody here. <laughs> you're way ahead. That's exactly what I want to go to. Adam is the federal head. So, quick, quick analogy. Who, good Alberta question. Who is the federal head of the nation of Canada currently? Trudeau. say it louder Albertans Justin you still don't want to say his name Justin Trudeau it, it really makes the point because Justin Trudeau is the federal head of the government now when Justin Trudeau does stuff as the federal head of the government you 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 all are included in that decision because you are citizens of Canada. You're included in his federal headship action. You say, well, I didn't didn't do it. Yeah, but you're included in it. You're included in his actions. Justin Trudeau said, you you know, first analogy, says we're going to war you are at war with whatever nation we're at war with because you're a citizen, because the federal head has taken that action. Even if you personally, in that distinct instance, have not sinned exactly or have taken that action in exactly the same way, but you are involved. In it. And that's why then he, Adam, as a representative, in whose actions included all of his descendants, which is going right there. So, that's why all of us are in Adam, unless, unless we have, by God's grace, been put into Christ by faith. So, that's why anybody who I meet, or you meet, anybody I meet, I know where they're at, and I don't need to know their story. I don't need to know all their background. I know where they're at, because I know they're in Adam. I know they're in Adam unless it's shown me the book. i clearly clear that they're in Christ. But they're in Adam. That clarifies it all. So it doesn't no matter what they've done or what they haven't done, they're in in Adam unless they're in Christ. So, so that's the prime minister analogy. It's kind of helpful to think about Adam. You see that chart there? We'll just kind of deal with that, and then we'll touch on the covenant of grace, and then I'll let you guys go. Uh, you have then original sin and actual sin. So these are categories from Burkhoff and all systematic theologians have it. The original sin is this, is this guilt and pollution. That's what we inherit from Adam because we're, we're his descendants. We both, we're in him. He's our federal head. So we inherit his guilt. You know, why are you a sinner? You ever ask that question? Why are you a sinner? Are you a sinner because you do bad things? Or do you do bad things because you were a sinner? Because you're a sinner who has inherited guilt and pollution, or guilt and uncleanness, or guilt and corruption. You've inherited that from your first father, from Adam. So that's what you have in terms of original sin. But then it's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. But what about me individually? Well, there is actual sin where outward acts, inward thoughts, desires, and decisions that proceed from the original sin in my life, they become manifest. So original sin leads to actual sin, the sins that you have committed. You've committed some sins that maybe I haven't committed, but they're all coming from the same place. I've committed sins that you might not have committed. But they're all coming from original sin. So one way of thinking of it is original sin is single. It's single. All of us are in Adam. All of us are affected by original sin, this single thing. But the actual sin is multiple. And it is manifest in all different ways, in all different manner. And then, just to throw that in, there is the impartible sin which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, namely, which I think is actually final unbelief for your, the denial of the work of the Holy Spirit, final unbelief of which there is no pardon and you go to hell. Uh, Romans 3.23, how far is this sin effect known? Well, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's universal. So there's no... There's no pristine person out there. There's no, there's no tribe on a deserted island with a and innocence. Oh well, they're going to go to heaven because they're an in innocence. There, no, no, no. All of them have fallen short of the glory of God. The last couple, two things are two technical things called the covenant of redemption covenant. Faith. Maybe just dwell on these and spend our time on them, but we don't really have enough time. The covenant of redemption is basically this. It's a technical term that refers to the relationship between the person of the Father and the person of the Son in the sending and commissioning of the Son be a Savior. So it's it's really holy ground, but it's kind of like it's as if there is this covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit to save sinners. Now it's controversial. So like. Don't we just want to be careful? The Bible does speak in that language, uh, in terms of this sending, but we just want to be careful. Uh, so that's that's the big basic idea of the covenant of redemption. But the covenant of grace in reformed thought, the best part the best description of it is this narrower term where it's this it's an end, namely that it responds to the works. And in the gift, the gift of Christ, the sending of Christ to be a savior, there is grace. Somebody give me a definition of grace. Undeserved favor. Unmerited, undeserved favor. Okay, so there's this blessing. Well, this is in fact the blessing. Why is it undeserved? Oh, because we fail. We're an adam. We fail the works part. So it's undeserved. We didn't we didn't achieve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do the works to earn the blessing. It's undeserved blessing, so it's not deserved, it's just because God's really generous, but it as an end in itself, a covenant of mutual friendship, or communion of life, which is realized in the course of history through the operation of the Holy Spirit. So that's us coming into this communion of life, this mutual friendship with God. It's a personal relationship with God, and it is undeserved. Uh, Burkhoff has a quote, covenant promises or I will be your God. And he says, to thy seed after me, those facing the fulfillment of, I see the fulfillment as being in Jesus Christ. Having the blessings of justification. Now, what's required, how do you get access to the covenant of grace? going to be by faith alone. By faith alone in Christ alone. And by consecrating yourself to new obedience. You trust Christ, but you're following Christ. You're not saying, Well, I kind of kind of agree with Jesus, but then I'm, you know, and do my own thing. No. It is giving oneself wholly to him. It's responding to Jesus who said, Follow me. But you're accepting all that he is by by faith. Last that chart, it's a gracious covenant. It's grace from start to finish. It's grace that is eternal and unbreakable. When you feel like you don't aren't worth God's love, well yeah, you're not worth God's love. But he gives an undeserved favor in his love and his love is eternal and it's unbreakable. You can't break his love for you. You can't break his grace. You can you, you can't not measure up to his standard course you don't measure up the standard, but that's not the point. He gives his eternal, unbreakable grace from start to finish. And not only that, it's not generic grace. It's not, and eh, just kind of thrown out there. It's focused and particular because he's gracious toward you. You, you individual, you particular, you and his special particular people, just like a marriage, just like my particular love for my wife that is different than my love or interest in anybody else. It is particular and focused. That is the covenant of grace. And it is bound up in God's own view. Uh, his own integrity is bound up in God's own name, his own reputation, his own eternal internal consistency. And it is then extended to us. God gives what he demands. How are you going to meet this standard, friends? You should despair. I can't, I, can't be, I can't do it. God gives what he demands. Augustine's great insight. God gives what he demands it. He demands the work, but he gives it. How does he give it? Ah, he gives immediately. He gives Christ. Christ is represented. I mean, the black older paragraph christ is represented as the mediator of the new covenant he is a mediator not merely in the sense that he intervened between god and man to sue for peace and to persuade to it but in the sense that he is armed with full power to do all that is necessary for the established for the actual establishment of peace 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 between you and god peace between you and god As our surety, he assumes our guilt, pays the penalty of sin, fills the law, and thus restores peace. And that, friends, is what salvation is peace with God. You you screwed up today? You sinned today? You're not on a performance review each day. You might be on a performance review at work, but you're not on a performance review with God. He Christ has established peace between you and God. God only looks on you with love. He only looks on you with his grace. Because you're in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ, you don't have peace with God. All bets are off. God is against you. But if you're in Christ, God is for you because He's for. Jesus Christ is on your side. So when you feel down, you feel discouraged, you feel anxious, you gotta go back. Oh, yeah, I trust Christ. I'm in Christ. God looks at me with the same love and grace that he looks upon Jesus Christ his own son. And that That is what the world desperately wants and they don't realize. They desperately want that. And they're looking for love in all the wrong places. And here's this love that God gives in Christ in this covenant of grace. He gives what he demands. He provides it. He does it all from finish. That is the glory of the gospel. And that, that's where getting these buckets right. Then that's practically, that's thats what warms your heart each day and gets you out of bed. Okay. I've kept you over time. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to open to questions. If you want to ask a questions you can, or if you got to leave, you can. So I'm going to pray, and we'll go. Gracious Heavenly Father, in view of your grace, your undeserved favor, I pray, Lord, you would help us to believe it. To believe that you are a loving, gracious God. And stop being unbelieving, that you trying to think that you're still holding us to the covenant of works as if Jesus didn't exist. As if Jesus didn't obey. As if Jesus wasn't obedient to the point of death. As if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Oh, Lord, help us to believe that he did, that he did all of that. And if so, that you love us in Christ and you love us with an everlasting, unbreakable, start-to-finish love because you give the very thing that you demand and you've given it in Jesus Christ. So help us to trust him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, before you go, but anybody got questions, I'll take a few as we... Far away, but don't feel like you've done it really city.